Greetings, music lovers. <laughs> As we hear the rhythmic strains of the haunting we flain, listen to the whip-wing rhythm of the woodwinds as it rolls a wound and a wound and it comes out here. That was Elmer Fudd, and this is Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. We are so glad to finally be back. We're so sorry that we had to take this extended hiatus, um, but we're super excited for what we have planned in the upcoming weeks and months to come. And Marty, I don't know about you, but I'm just really excited to talk with you about film music once a week. Here, here. As Will said, we really just want to apologize for the radio silence as of late, and we can't wait to get back into doing the podcast, starting with today's real change. Absolutely. The focus of today's episode is on cartoon music, which, as I'm sure you can guess, is music that was created for either an animated short or an animated film or all manner of tunes and cartoons. And it's it's going to take us through really the entire history of this incredibly rich and fun part of our culture. And it might seem like maybe more of a footnote, but music for animation is hugely significant to the history and practice of film score and continues to distinguish itself nearly 90 years later. Say, well, let's play a little word association game. Okay. What word or name springs to mind if I say cartoon music? I would have to say Disney. I think I'd have said the same thing. It's probably the first name we associate with animation and likely the first with animated music. And while we might chalk that up to maybe the power of corporate advertising or something, historically, Walt Disney figures extremely large in the innovation of cartoon music. Marty, I'm curious, uh, what would the second name be that comes to mind if we're doing that same word association? Uh, that'd have to be Warner Brothers, I think. You know, that might be true for me, too. And what's amazing is that both of those studios are related and both have a shared history when it comes to cartoon music. Uh, I'm talking about the early partnership of Walt Disney and Carl Stalling. You're absolutely right. Uh, listeners might recognize Stalling's name. He was responsible for, and this is not an exaggeration, hundreds of scores for classic Warner Brothers. This is Merry Melodies, Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner, you name it. But years before Stalling worked at Warner Brothers, uh, he actually played the organ every week, not at church, but at the Isis movie theater in Kansas City, accompanying the silent films of the 19 teens and 20s. And not only did he play the organ, but Stalling eventually conducted his own orchestra for the Isis. Boy, the phrases Isis and film music have not yet come together on the podcast. That's also very true. Uh, now, before the billion-dollar corporation, before all the sea of merchandise and world fame, Walt Disney was just a young director of animated shorts struggling for work and exposure. A Kansas City and himself, Disney came to know Carl Stalling, who befriended him and helped him bring the shorts to the ISIS. And Stalling also commissioned Disney to make some music-related shorts, sort of follow the bouncing ball types of things, with lyrics on screen as the live orchestra played along. 
The two actually kept in touch after Disney left for Hollywood, and both would speculate on the future of sound and films and the eventual need of a sound director for Disney's movies. While Stalling was still in Kansas City, out in California, Disney began to develop a groundbreaking short with his relatively small staff, an animated film that would be synced to sound, pre-recorded sound. Steamboat Willie was the first animated short to feature a fully post-produced soundtrack, and it also introduced the character of Mickey Mouse, who swiftly took the world by storm. Yeah, the importance of this particular short in our culture can really not be overstated. And the music for Steamboat Willie was produced by Disney, Burt Lewis and Wilfred Jackson, who is one of the animators. And it was built around familiar popular song tunes, uh, Turkey in the Straw and Steamboat Bill. It's not exaggerating to call Steamboat Willie revolutionary. The animation was designed around the tempo and musicality of the underscore. The characters on screen moved and breathed and whistled along with the music. Yeah, there's a reason that we call this type of close-knit underscoring Mickey Mousing. This is really where that all originates. Now, to make all of this possible, the team developed a special metronome to sync the music and action, something they came to call the click track. Now, that's a tool and term still used today, not only in film scoring, but in music production of all kinds. Now, on his way to New York to record the score, Walt Disney stopped back in Kansas City to visit Carl Stalling, telling him about the Steamboat Willie short and the synchronized music. He also left him with something, two recently finished shorts for Stalling to compose to, shorts that also featured the character of Mickey Mouse. Stalling had never been hired as a composer, considering himself an improviser and arranger, but he really took to composing Disney's two shorts. And years later, he actually said, I improvised at the theaters, and that's composing, but it's not writing it down. That's such an interesting comment, because I think when we think about um, Stalling's music, and I guess you could say what became the cartoon music sound, ultimately, it's something that feels very free and very spontaneous. So you can almost imagine that it comes from an improvisatory mind, yet also, at the same time, when I think technically of actually producing that music and recording it for an orchestra, it requires quite a lot of finesse and detail on the written page. So I think it's interesting how, you know, he said he maybe didn't necessarily consider himself a composer, but I definitely place him among the ranks of one of the great film composers of all time. Completely agree. You know, Mickey Mousing is one of those techniques that's much easier to criticize than it is to employ. And the ingenuity, the intelligence, and the work ethic that it took to write his music is really remarkable. So Stalling traveled to New York to record these shorts along with Disney, and they were together when Steamboat Willie previewed on Broadway. Stalling actually moved then to Hollywood and became Disney's principal music director, and the two helped to concoct a series of sound-synced, music-driven shorts for the now-thriving Disney studio, and these were known as Silly Symphonies. The first of the Silly Symphonies is perhaps also the most famous and was composed by Stalling. Let's take a listen to the skeleton dance. (laughs) 
this piece, The Skeleton Dance. I'm, I'm getting brief flashbacks of Halloween. This might have been a fun piece to listen to if you were out trick-or-treating. And there's such a charm here to the music, even when it is trying to evoke something spooky. And I think that positive undercurrent, that's definitely a part of a lot of the best cartoon music. Right. Also, there's something unforgettable about the... Uh, the skeleton bones as xylophones as it matches up with the music here. Well, and I find that there's like a heaviness to a lot of early cartoon music because, you know, the term Mickey Mousing comes from that deliberate underscoring of, of the character's actions. And I find that often with early cartoon music that's underscoring, you know, the steps of the cartoon characters walking, there's this yump, 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 this, this kind of heaviness on each beat that isn't necessarily natural or, or common in a lot of musical styles, but because oftentimes just the, the visuals of how these cartoon characters would walk, a lot of these kind of extreme musical gestures or devices were used because there was something just so delightful and having that synchronization between the visuals and sound. The music became a caricature of the walking, but at the same time, the animation became a caricature of the music. It was really kind of this delightful pairing. And it's fascinating how recognizable this is as cartoon music, given that it's really one of the earliest examples we have. Right. Well, and I think it's safe to say that as the years went on, the Silly Symphonies were a woodshed for experimentation and advancements in the field of music and in animation as well. Disney's first color animation was actually a Silly Symphony titled Flowers and Trees that was released back in 1932. And that became the first animated short to win an Academy Award, kind of a historic achievement. And the Silly Symphonies really took on a life of their own with colorful characters, colorful underscore, and soon original songs, including one of the great pop hits of the 1930s, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, written by Frank Churchill for the Silly Symphony, The Three Little Pigs, underscored by Stalling and released in 1933. He don't take no time to play, time to play. up but it almost seems like that male voice we heard earlier could have been one of the actors who performed one of the dwarves maybe grumpy or something yeah I, you know i often find when listening to music from the 1930s just the style in which everyone was singing the type of vibrato they were using and just the sound of people's voices were so different i feel like you could recognize the era even if it didn't have that kind of compressed old-fashioned recording sound to it just the way that people spoke seems to be so different from how they they do now and there's something so charming to that that i really associate with uh, disney and a lot of this early cartoon music it's sort of amazing this is four years before the first full-length animated feature and so many of the hallmarks of cartoon music are already in place 
a lively character, dynamic Mickey Mousing, and now integrated narrative original song. Right, that, that's very true. And also Frank Churchill's style of songwriting, and I think the style, you could argue, of Stallings' composition. And part of this might have to do with the origins of Steamboat Willie taking these existing folk tunes. There's this kind of folk Americana sound to a lot right. of this writing that it, it does feel like a, a, a celebration of kind of earthy music, of kind of blue-collar, everyday American types of songs. And there's something I think so charming about that. And now, while this stuff doesn't necessarily sound contemporary to us, it, it definitely evokes a specific period and time. I think if we remember in context, there was something very humble and almost like pastoral and, and sweet about all of this music that I think it was really... Totally. It was really meant to appeal to children, but more so than just that, it was meant to just appeal to common folk, just everyday people. There was an importance placed on these tunes being really catchy and memorable, and I think that's one of the things that made cartoons, and particularly Disney's animated features and shorts, so successful because the music was really memorable and became a real selling point for why people would want to go to the movies. I think you've really put your finger on really one of the core values that Disney had and still, I think, seems to be really important to the company today, which is really entertainment for everyone, initially across the country, but now across the world. Right. And to what you're saying, Will, the quality of Frank Churchill's work and influence in the animated musical, heck, the musical itself, almost can't be exaggerated. But let's pick up that thread in maybe a future real change. There's just so much more cartoon music to talk about today. Very true. And during the 1930s, in the years before Snow White, which is the film that you were alluding to, that first feature-length animated film, the Disney studio had splintered somewhat. One of the founders, who is also the primary animator and co-creator of Mickey, Ub Iwerks, actually left, founding his own company and taking Stalling with him as music director, though Carl continued to actually freelance for Disney. And the market for animation really seemed to be growing, with successful shorts being produced by Fleischer, Leon Schlesinger, and others. In 1936, Schlesinger, under contract with Warner Brothers, hired iWorks as an animator, who brought along Carl Stalling as music director. And it was there that Stalling began the work that would really dominate his life. From 1936 onward, Carl Stalling was the film composer for almost every theatrical animated short released by Warner Brothers cartoons until his retirement. He averaged one complete score a week for 22 years. Just think about that. And he was credited for writing the score to over 600 films. It's just staggering, but it's not merely the large amount of scores that he composed. The consistency. Exactly. Just the high quality throughout his career. And earlier we alluded to really just the technique and the work ethic that's required to write in this sort of idiom. Carl Stalling is probably the best-loved champion of this cartoon idiom. All right, I think we've been patient enough. Why don't we listen to some vintage Carl Stalling here? This is an excerpt from the short Stage Fright. Thank you. 
is so delightful. And what I love about listening to this early cartoon music is there are so many influences at play when we listen to something like this. One of the big influences comes from the world of live theater, vaudeville and Broadway. A lot of the kind of musical traditions and styles from the stage became made in popular use in especially particularly comedies and cartoons were no exception. And then also we have, you know, popular music forms like foxtrots and other types of dances and, you know, jazz big band writing that also seems to be somewhat assimilated into this era of film scoring. And then on top of that, we have the classical music tradition. Composers we've mentioned before, like Wagner and Richard Strauss, and all the incredible Russian romantic composers, and you know Mozart, Beethoven, that entire symphonic tradition is also, I think, equally as present an influence in what I think makes Carl Stalling such an incredibly significant and important composer, is I think he was really one of the first names to combine all of those things in a way that felt distinct and was a style that people could associate as its own, where right. all of a sudden you weren't necessarily hearing the influences. It just sounded like Disney or it sounded like Warner Brothers. It was the sound of animation. And like you mentioned, a lot of these early shorts are comedies. And so often with underscoring comedy, if you're unable to play these musical references uh, sort of straight, the joke almost doesn't land or doesn't right. work. And so it requires an incredibly diverse and uh, sharpened toolkit that composers like Stalling needed to have in order to be able to make these whip turns from genre to genre. Right. But it's not as though this music is purely pastiche, just sort of scrapbooking different musical excerpts together. This is also a great American melting pot where artists like Stalling bravely go into this new art form, taking with them all of their influences and their frame of reference, but in the process, creating something extremely new. You know, it's kind of like video game music in that way. That's a theme that Carl and I touch on all the time on the Super Mercado Brothers podcast is... Um, it, it's kind of exciting seeing the, the rise of video game music as its own medium because it, it has distinctive styles, particularly in the early days, because it is borrowing so many influences from all these different styles of music. And also, I think the parallel between cartoons and video games is that both have kind of grown in appreciation and respect over, over the years. Um, and both, I think, started off being viewed as something that were almost like toys for children. And while I think both mediums have continued to grow and reach levels of emotional sophistication that people maybe didn't imagine were possible, I do think something is lost where now creating an, a score to an animated film is really not all that different than creating the score to any other film because it's about the narrative and the story and the characters. And sometimes I, I do miss the unabashed fun and excitement and the, frankly, the Mickey Mousing of these old cartoon scores. Another interesting influence on Stalling's work was the studio itself, Warner Brothers, who really encouraged composers to incorporate popular songs for which they had the publishing, right. just really adding to the myriad of influences that end up making cartoon music what it is. 
We read recently that Stalling apparently never saw a completed animation, but wrote his music to the animator's frame-specific timing sheets. You know, underscoring has probably never been as exact as with composers like Stalling, who, along with the early Disney sound team, as we mentioned, is credited with developing the click track. This is part seven, production number 1425. Five, boys. We could just as easily call it Bugs Bunnying, <laughs> but Stalling wasn't alone in exemplifying the dynamic style of cartoon scoring. One of the leading lights in animation music has to be Scott Bradley. He's known best as the composer of a series of shorts for Hanna-Barbera, Tom and Jerry. Let's take a listen to an excerpt from That's My Mommy, which starts with Bradley's famous Tom and Jerry theme. Again, we're hearing all that Broadway influence, so much early musical theater, and I mean, even through to the time of like West Side Story, it's kind of like a known cliche, but so much of the accompaniment is that it's this way of kind of having an underscore that can be kind of lively and rhythmic and have all this subdivision. And often we have melodies that are, are more lyrical or long line on top of it. Um, and I love that that style of accompaniment is carried over into the world of film. And I feel like you especially notice it in early comedies. Because um, totally. early comedy movies kind of sound like cartoon music. I mean, even something like, you know, Young Frankenstein that came out in the 70s. Uh, what I love about it is the, that whole movie is trying to be this pastiche, you know, throwback to uh, the old universal horror pictures. But the music actually sounds like a throwback to an old comedy score. Um, it's using a lot of those same kind of uh, tropes, I guess. Completely. And really what we're hearing here in this example, this is the sound of cartoons. It's bright, it's versatile, it's funny, but musically it's also very sophisticated and inspired. Animated shorts led to some inventive orchestrations. Right. The composers were responsible not only for underscore, but in some cases, some of the sound effects as well. Right. All expected to be performed by the orchestra organically and in time. There were a handful of other talented composers who were also on the front lines of that cartoon sound, including uh, Milt Franklin, who was also at Warner Brothers, and Buddy Baker at Disney. Heroes all. Writing in this idiom is an incredible challenge, and for those of us who admire these legendary composers, thankfully it's still in demand now and then. Many of our greatest film composers have taken their turn in expressing that classic little cartoon style. Let's go on a little tasting tour of some of our favorite examples.
That was music by the great Bruce Broughton for the 1992 short Off His Rockers. Broughton studied the music of Stalling, Bradley, and others. And throughout the 1990s, he had some unique cartoon music opportunities of his own, including scoring the Rescuers Down Under for Disney, as well as this little unforgettable cartoon theme song for television. We're tiny, we're toony, we're all a little loony. And this afternoon we're invading your CD. We're comic dispensers, we crack up all the sensors. On tiny tune adventures, get a dose of comedy. So here's at the acres, it's a whole wide world apart. Our homes we only stands alone, a cartoon work of art. The scripts were rejected, expect the unexpected. On tiny tune adventures, it's about to start. They're furry. We mentioned Broughton studying the great uh, cartoon composers, and he's, of course, nailing all of the orchestrational detail, and the arrangement is wonderful. But let's talk about this melody. I mean, it would be a competitive Hall of Fame if we're looking at TV theme songs, but for me, this is up there. It is just outstanding. Right, it's as good as a Frank Churchill song. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Bruce Broughton is, is just the best. I feel like there's nothing he can't do. He's in my opinion, probably the most underrated film composer and the most underutilized of our great film composers. I, he's such a talent. And I mean, I know we're both such huge fans of his. Well, and recently, friend of animation and film music, Seth MacFarlane, tapped Bruce Broughton to compose the theme <laughs> for his new television show, The Orville. Well, speaking of television, one of the great stalling homages of all time is still with us week to week. Matt Groening specifically asked Danny Elfman to compose something in the vein of Carl Stalling when inviting him to compose the theme song to... first repeat guest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's wonderful having another reason to play Danny's great theme here again on the show. And what we've mentioned before, of course, would hold true today, but it's nice to pay special attention to the sort of Stalling-esque orchestrational colors that run throughout this theme. Now, while we're here, we have to address some important but sad recent television music news. The long-running and incredible composer of The Simpsons, Mr. Alf Clausen, has been apparently let go from the show after decades. We're still holding out hope that somehow in the future the producers will reverse their decision, but at this point it seems that Clausen and the many musicians he worked with week to week will no longer be working for the show. So I know both Will and I have just had classic Clausen cues running through our heads ever since. Right, I mean, something I was obsessed with uh, was the work that he did for the episode Cape Fear. And in my memory, when I saw it as a kid, I thought he was I thought they just used uh, Bernard Herrmann's Cape Fear theme. But when I went back and watched the episode, it's like, oh, no, it's a new theme and new music that's in the style of Bernard Herrmann. And I kind of have this weird opinion about it that, like, I sort of think Alf Clausen's (laughs) theme is even better. (laughs) I know that's, like, almost a sacrilegious thing to say, but this man was so incredibly talented. Well, let's show our support for Alf and listen to some of his impeccable work. This is The Land of Chocolate from The Simpsons. (laughs) 
We mentioned when talking about Carl Stalling the craft and technique required when writing music for comedy and touching on known reference points. And here, Clausen is sending up a style of music that to Will and I is very near and dear, the sort of light orchestral production music in the style of, say, Rory Johnson, Happy Go Lively or something. But once again, it's not merely a pastiche. This is a terrific piece of music that stands on its own while clearly winking at you. Yeah, Alf Clausen is as important as any of the voice actors, as any of the great Simpsons writers or directors, animators. Uh, he's so crucial to the identity of that show. And often, Alf playing the straight man is one of the funniest things in The Simpsons. A piece like this is not used in earnest. It's used for comedy, you know. In, in music like this happens all the time in The Simpsons. There'll be some crazy fantasy dream sequence of Homer, you know, in a dream where he's like eating a bunch of donuts or something and you have this like idealistic 1950s sweet plucky like elevator sounding music and it's just it's so perfect and I think honestly that's one of the things that was really influential in a show like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia that you know wants to use that old 1950s 60s production music for a similar type of comic effect. Alf Clausen had a really big impact and The Simpsons had a huge impact on the world of comedy and I think Clausen had an equal, if not greater, impact on the world of animated scoring. We mentioned Seth MacFarlane a few minutes ago, and thankfully, at the time of recording, I believe uh, all of his animated productions are still employing uh, live live orchestra. And yeah, he's really quite the fan of classic film music and just orchestral symphonic right. music altogether. It's kind of well, wonderful. and he he. <laughs> Got, yeah, Bruce Broughton to write his new Star Trek parody show, and he has Alan Silvestri writing music for Cosmo. So yeah, definitely a few bright spots on the landscape here. Uh, jumping back into the film world, we mentioned so many of our famous film composers getting opportunities to put on the cartoon hat. Let's listen to a delightful moment from one of Jerry Goldsmith's final scores. This comes from Looney Tunes, Back in Action. just hear so much of jerry's personality in this it's just amazing music music is unlike anything else like composers really put their soul into their art and it's not even something that i think they could always articulate well and john williams has described it as a musical thumbprint 
that part of you that you almost have no control over putting into your work. And for those of us that are fans and admirers of particular composers, yeah, it's just such a joy seeing that personality again and again. Well, and speaking of John Williams and speaking of great film composers working on classic cartoon music, we love this cue from Jurassic Park that Williams wrote, uh, Mr. DNA. In the score, it's actually titled Stalling Around. And this is that moment in Jurassic Park when they're watching that little educational video about DNA. It's one of my favorite moments in the film. And Terrific. For those of us who are John Williams fans and Carl Stalling fans, uh, it doesn't get much better than this. Spare no expense. love about this cue is I think the pastiche element in the nod to stalling which even exists in the name of the cue itself while that's all there it still has William's thumbprint in the same way that we said uh, Jerry Goldsmith had his thumbprint so many of the devices here first of all his harmonic language and his use of planing you know parallel moving triads and then also his clarinet writing there's that one like you know that really reminds me of like the, the adventures of Tintin or something Yeah, we've got to say there's a lot of love for classic cartoon music among our film composers here, and we can only hope for more examples in the future. Uh, somewhat more recently, Henry Jackman delivered an outstanding uh, golden era style cartoon score for Disney's last animated feature version of Winnie the Pooh. Let's take a listen. You know, I also hear a lot of John Williams' influence in Henry Jackman's work, especially in some of my favorite scores by him. Uh, He's definitely someone who I find to be very informed, and to me, I feel like it's a bit of a shame that recently he's been used, I don't think, to his fullest potential, and I think he's being asked to do a lot of, you know, modern blockbuster, zimmery sounding scores that I think he's more than capable of doing. But I love opportunities like this where he can show off his uh, classical orchestrational knowledge and informed referencing of some other great film music masters. (laughs) 
yeah, in addition to the approach to spotting and the sort of Mickey Mousing that we're talking about, so much of the cartoon sound, I think, for us is rooted in the harmony of some of those initial influences. Broadway show tunes, for instance, like you mentioned earlier, Will. And honestly, it's a harmonic palette that we'll almost never encounter in the movie theater these days. And these excursions into classic cartooning is just such a wonderful opportunity to step into that world again. It's really delightful listening to, as we mentioned, all of these film composers that we might associate with other types of films doing their uh, cartoon Carl Stalling tribute, if you will. But perhaps our favorite madcap cartoon homage has to come from Alan Silvestri (laughs) in the very opening of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a movie that itself is a complete love letter to this era of animation. Um, Let's take a listen to the music from the faux short Baby's Day Out. It's a phenomenal stretch of cartoon music, and as we've been saying, another great taste of one of our favorite composers. We have, in addition to an incredible pitch-perfect cartoon homage, another wonderful example of Mr. Alan Silvestri's personality. Right, and it's Alan through and through. I mean, his kind of tritone chord movement stuff, his use of the octatonic scale, his incredibly specific brand of orchestration that I think especially was happening a lot around this time in the 1980s. There's a specific way that he uses like the xylophone, for instance, and mallet percussion in general that uh, it doesn't make me think of anybody other than Alan. Uh, And God, I I so love this score. I, I really... As a score, I see it as like a companion to Back to the Future, um, <laughs> especially too. in some of the more like action music sequences. The, there's a lot of um, overlap between like this and Back to the Future 2 and everything. And I just think it's so wonderful. In ways big and small, much of what makes this cartoon music unique lives on. Tight spotting, eclectic aesthetic, and colorful orchestrations are all hallmarks of music for animation. Not just television comedies, but feature-length theatrical films. We really like some of what Christoph Beck shared at a composer's roundtable following his work on Frozen. You might be familiar with Christoph because he's been the composer of the underscore to several recent Disney animated films. Well, I think I think animation is a really different uh, breed when it comes to the approach to music. It has the film has to be created whole from nothing. There's there's not an actor there giving a performance. It has it's to be created. That's right. So so as a result, I just I I myself couldn't believe this as I was working on the film, but it seemed like scene after scene, no matter what kind of a cue a music cue it was. There just seemed to be all this room for, for music with beginnings, middles, and ends. You know, um, it's obviously a mainstream Disney animated film, just from a purely perspective of aesthetics and style, very different from a Captain Phillips. You know, there's no way um, 
three minutes of D minor is going to work <laughs> in Frozen. Yeah. Um, in fact, the opposite was true. I felt, I, I felt that it, it kind of needed more. Like there was, for, you know, there's sort of in the back of your mind, there's a grand tradition of, of Disney animated films as well right. that you're thinking about. And there's certain tastes and aesthetics that have informed that particular studio and the movies they've made. But it, it, really, it really felt like there was, there was room to do more. You know, I think he really puts his finger on the power of music in all film, which is first and foremost to animate a story with emotional life in the same way that so many talented artists bring those drawings and bring those images of characters to life through the magic of cartoons. You know, we hear a lot of discussion around the changing character of film music, uh, often described as moving away from heavily melodic and temporally dynamic writing. But most underscore for animated features continues in just that spirit. And these scores are often great examples of how to assimilate new approaches to sound and style with almost classic character-driven scoring. I think one of my favorite examples in recent memory has to be the work of John Powell. I think this might serve as a good sample for some of that old meets new that we're treated to in modern animation. I don't think we can resist playing some of his exceptional and I know very well-loved score to How to Train Your Dragon. Let's listen to music from the opening of the film. This is Burke. Wow, we've had so much fun traveling through so many eras of cartoon music today. What a great tradition of music and orchestration that this is. And as we've said, a tradition so critical to the development of all music for film, or even, we could say, all sound media. This is music that brought about the click track and formalized recording and composing practices. Right. And needless to say, it's music we love. Well, thank you all so much for listening to today's Real Change, and an even bigger thanks for your patience while we took so long unspooling the last reel, if you will. We cannot wait to share our next series of episodes with you. Without giving away our film subject, like in the past, it has very much something to do with today's Real Change. I think we're both a little bit rusty on this whole plug thing at the end of the episode, but we're going to give it a try. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you'd really be doing us a, a great favor if you were to like or even leave a review at Apple Podcasts. This helps new listeners discover underscore. Part two of if you have any change, thoughts, concerns, questions, or ideas, please feel free to pass them along at the underscore show at gmail.com. Underscore is made possible thanks to our Patreon producers, including Jean-David Blanc, Charlie McCarran, Stuart Folks, BJ Crawford, Matthew Berry, Alex Death, Desmond Clark, Jordan Kolosinski, Travis Anderson, and Jackie Brueggemann. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. That's all for this week, everyone. Until next time. Remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Underscore is part of the Mercado Brothers Podcast Network.